Jones, the CEO and founder of the Center for Higher Education Leadership. And today we are talking to Jonathan Friedman, who is going to talk to us about free speech. So Jonathan, can you please introduce yourself? Good morning, Terry. Uh, thrilled to be here on the uh, podcast. Yes, I'm the um, project director for Campus Free Speech at Penn America, where I oversee our efforts to um, work with and develop guidance on free speech issues for college campuses around the country. Great. So um, we know that free speech is a big topic on campuses today, and, and I know higher ed leaders are struggling with these issues. You know, it's an issue of academic freedom, and you've got faculty and students and protesters who are coming on campus. And, you know, I think it'd be helpful to just get a better understanding of what is free speech. Yeah, it's a great question. It's one of these uh, topics that everyone has something to say about, but what's going on at the core? I think there are at least two ways of thinking about this question. One is, what is the law around free speech, uh, which is probably how most Americans uh, interact with the concept or, or most people on college campuses, uh, especially when thinking about um, what is the legacy of the First Amendment and how does it um, dictate what can or can't be said on different kinds of campuses, uh, public or private. Mm -hmm. um, the other way of thinking about free speech, though, is uh, thinking of it as, as from the perspective of international human rights. And mm -hmm. Penn, at, at my organization, we're a nonprofit, almost 100 years old, and we've worked uh, for nearly a century on defending uh, creative expression in the arts and in the literary world, and in doing so around, around the world. So we look at issues of free speech on college campuses uh, through the prism of more of uh, international human rights, in addition to thinking about some of the laws around free speech. So there's kind of these, these two ways of thinking about these issues. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And I mean, so there's kind of a strict legal approach to free speech that says, okay, you know, you can't yell fire in a theater, but, you know, you can say you know, just about anything else. Um, but we also know that people get offended, you know, there's, there's just different things that, that can impact, um, especially for higher ed people, we, we look at, you know, what's happening in the classroom and, um, you know, the students protesting things that faculty say. So, you know, I, I'm curious if you've grappled with those issues um, in terms of, you know, the, this, this tension between being able to say whatever you want to say, but people feeling offended. Yeah, it's certainly a tension. Um, and the, the, the First Amendment doesn't really trade in, you know, thinking about what people find offensive. Really, it has these uh, interesting roots in the history of well, of the American Revolution and the uh, desire to protect the freedom of press and freedom of a public and a democracy um, to speak freely, to, to mm -hmm. have that kind of, um, you know, what they call the marketplace of ideas where different entities can, can speak and be heard. And I think that often the kind of legacy of that has gets, gets twisted today into saying, well, you can say anything you want to anybody at any time. Mm -hmm. It's not exactly the case. There are certain situations where speech uh, has been uh, policed and regulated. For example, you can't be found to be inciting violence or uh, right. uh, trading in, in, in libel or defamation. Um, and, and, and it's often, I think, kind of gets uh, portrayed to people as, oh, well, this means you can say anything offensive to anybody. And perhaps that is the um, effect. But I think it's really important for people to understand the roots of why that is. And that is very much uh, in trying to protect the rights of people to speak their minds. You know, free mm -hmm. speech uh, does allow people to say things that might offend people, but it also creates a kind of natural mechanism uh, for social criticism. And right. if anything, 
right? If anything, the whole idea of protecting the voices of minorities um, mm -hmm. or of minority views in a society is in case those views, you know, have some mm -hmm. merit or maybe over time um, could prove to be merit, you know, could prove to be correct. So I think it's really important that we not lose sight, I think, in some of the conversations today about, well, free speech um, gives people license to say hateful things. And that, mm -hmm. that's true, but that wasn't the intent behind it. Right. No, I, I agree. And I think, you know, it's really great that you put it in the context of our democracy, because, of course, uh, in, a, in a democratic society, you want people to have free speech, but you don't, also don't want people to be oppressed. And often speech is can be a form of oppression, um, depending on how it's utilized. And so as a political scientist, you know, we, we think about these issues a lot, um, especially in looking at uh, you know, things like elections and so on. But, you know, I think on college campuses, um, there's been a lot of tension around, you know, people bringing in speakers who um, have particular viewpoints. And, and I'm curious what your organization has been uh, saying about that. Well, you know, we've been very, um, I would say, very extremely hesitant to suggest that universities should be disinviting people. And really, it stems from a belief in actually the importance of democracy. So on most campuses, you have a situation with, um, you know, power is distributed quite widely in the university, maybe not ultimate power, but at least the autonomous power of different units to make these kinds of invitations to outside speakers. And so, you know, let's do a thought experiment and imagine the situation in which we have the university authority stepping in over top of, of student groups, of academic departments, of, I don't know, other kinds of institutes which have extended offers. And the question is, do we really want that kind of oversight, a body um, who perhaps could act, you know, neutrally on that issue, but would most likely be acting for political purposes? We want, really want to set a precedent where um, such an oversight body has such absolute power to deny essentially the democratic choices of different groups on campus. So I think the, and, and we at Penn have, have been consistent in vocalizing this, that I think it's important to explain to people, you know, what it means to invite others and in, invite outside speakers and explain the gravity of that and what it can symbolize, but also for the university in the long run to recognize um, what kinds of other principles it would begin to violate if it would begin to police those invitations. So I think it can certainly lead to difficult situations, to tense situations on campuses. Uh, just last night, uh, Donald Trump Jr. spoke at the University of Florida, mm -hmm. and uh, there was a lot of contention there, and a lot of the, you know, a lot of protests, uh, a lot of heated protests, a lot of heated um, um, conflicts on the campus. Luckily, it appears nobody was injured, and uh, they didn't shut down the event. And it, you know, if they had shut down the event, if some university body had, it immediately raises questions about. Um, how they should be, you know, who should be shut down next. At the same time this week in the news, we had Greta Thunberg um, speaking in Iowa at a climate uh, protest on campus and the mm -hmm. university feeling uncertain about the extent to which it should be promoting or seem to be condoning that event. And so I fear the ways in which um, any effort to shut down, uh, you know, Donald Trump Jr. on one public university could have a kind of trickle effect, effect on ways to shut down other speakers um, uh, who might have, you know, really more noble goals in mind. So I think it's really important that when these, these kind of values come into conflict, yes, I, I understand uh, how many, some of these speakers on campus who we've seen tread in hate 
and spread and, and, and hope to be to be spreading that. But I also think it's important that we be careful not to violate other principles of democracy and of liberalism um, in, in thinking about how we respond to the situation. So um, that's really great because I know here, I live in the San Francisco Bay Area and I know, you know, schools like Berkeley and Stanford have been struggling with these issues and, and have, you know, basically tried to say, yes, the, you know, these people do have a right to be invited to campus and, and um, you know, we are a play, you know, basically it's a, you know, we are open to the exchange of ideas. Um, and, you know, it, I think that's an important component of this, but um, what, I know you guys have been working on some resources to help college campuses, um, you know, basically you know, work their way through these issues. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so Penn, we, we started our work on college, on campus free speech about three years ago, and it stemmed from an observation that there were two groups really speaking past one another on a lot of these issues. On one hand, uh, you had groups calling for uh, greater diversity, greater inclusion, for reckoning with histories of discrimination and racism and bigotry on campuses, and uh, calling for certain changes on campuses. I don't think those groups ever intended to be censorious or shutting down speech, but that was the effect of, of their calls, or at least some of their calls. And we had this reaction to that, um, uh, more from uh, First Amendment scholars, lawyers, philosophers, who saw in this call for greater uh, inclusion and calls that seemed to be infringing upon the rights to free speech, um, you know, they were alarmed by it. And they said, you know, this is, this is gonna set a bad precedent and this is going to um, um, really challenge the core value of free speech that's central to academic freedom and, you know, really campuses where people feel free to say what's on their mind, free to conduct, you know, research into difficult and challenging topics. And so these two groups were really coming at a lot of these issues on free speech, about free speech on campus, whether it had to do with uh, the rights of protesters, the questions about safe spaces or uh, trigger warnings. Uh, and, and those groups were really looking at the same principles, looking at the same concepts and, and seem to just be unable to listen to one another or unable to cede much ground to the other side. And so our role at Penn has really been to be a convener and trying to set a kind of balanced and nuanced view of these two positions and say, you know, actually there's a way for them to um, not be at odds with each other, but actually complement one another and be intertwined. We often say here that you can't really be pro-free speech unless you're talking about free speech for all in a really truly inclusive way or that the importance of um, uh, open inquiry on campus is really about being open to diverse views and diverse uh, perspectives. Uh, and by the same token, you can't really have an inclusive campus where some don't have the right to free speech that others do. And so for us, in our view, these, these uh, ideals are really uh, quite mutually reinforcing. So what we've tried to do after years of doing dialogues on campuses, consultations with faculty and administrators and students, we've kind of put all of our advice and wisdom, and not just ours, but their collective wisdom as, as well, into this new website called the uh, Campus Free Speech Guide, which really brings together, I think, some of the most important advice that we have to offer on issues, whether it's academic freedom, invited speakers, protests on campus, uh, civil disobedience, um, diversity and inclusion or discrimination and harassment. And we really tried to provide on this website clear, consistent, step-by-step -step advice for these different constituents on campuses for how to face different scenarios. 
Yeah, that's really great because these kinds of resources um, are the kinds of things we here at the Center for Higher Education Leadership are hoping to make sure it gets out there. And, and so we really support that because I know that when I was a provost, you know, there were a lot of issues arose, especially right after, you know, the Ferguson shooting and, and um, you know, kind of the subsequent protests after that. And, you know, we held a few forums ourselves around this issue. And, um, you know, they were really helpful, but, you know, it, it's, you know, one of the struggles I had as a provost is, you know, how do I really get my students to understand, you know, what it means to have free speech, you know, what explaining to them at, you know, I can explain academic freedom, but um, I think a lot of students who have, you know, come up in this era of, you know, divisiveness and so on, um, but also, you know, feeling um, in some ways, especially students of color under attack, that, uh, you know, this idea of, you know, safe spaces has become important to them. And, and I agree, but, you know, there's a, a, you know, you have to walk the line. It's like, we can't protect you from everything. <laughs> and, Absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, go ahead. Did you want to? No, I, I think, I think that's exactly right. It, is um, there has been this question of how should provosts or how should students approach these issues and we've really tried to provide that roadmap in this website and it's based on literally years of people saying to us well that's a great idea can we share it can we uh, find somewhere that is housed and so our guide doesn't just have Ken's advice on a lot of issues it also refers people to good resources that we found from many organizations um, working on these issues across the country and it still remains one of the most consistent uh, questions I get asked on college campuses, which is, well, who's doing this well? And what's a model that we can follow? Or how do we be proactive about supporting free speech on campus? Uh, how can we develop a policy or a statement about uh, free speech and inclusion that balances those ideals? And so all of that is now at least readily accessible on our uh, this single kind of go-to guide. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's really great. Um, I have certainly... Uh, you know, look to your the materials you guys have provided, and and I think there's, um, I I would really like to see though maybe um, more of a dialogue at the level of college presidents and provosts and so on because I feel like you get these people who um, uh, come out of the faculty and um, don't necessarily know what resources are. So I know you're bopping around the country <laughs> on a regular basis, uh, working on these issues, but. Um, you know, I, I'm hoping actually at some point down the line we can do a, a webinar on the issue of free speech for um, the people who are part of our community, because I think that uh, college presidents um, often aren't confronted with, or even provosts or deans for that matter, aren't confronted with these issues and so they're often doing this on the fly when they have an issue on campus. And so I think it's, it's really important, but I'm so glad you guys are doing these free speech guides and so on, because I think it's really important to, to be prepared and um, know how, you know, there's been a couple of instances, for example, I've seen just recently reported in the Chronicle of Higher Education about professors using the N word. And a lot of times we, we lose the context of, of what, you know, that, has uh, you know, where that's happening and a lot of time it's it's because they're looking at a piece of literature i know for me personally i teach the the politics of immigration and you know i hate to say the word but you know the word what that comes up because of operation that operation that the uh, uh you know government did back in the 1950s and um 
you know, I, if I say the W word, people won't know <laughs> what I'm talking about. Yes. So, yeah, the N word has a little bit more context. And so, you know, I think we struggle with, you know, how, you know, when something is historical and, you know, it's in the record and you have to teach it, um, that, you know, but there's different contexts around that I think students might feel a certain you know, if there's this professor who's particularly abrasive and so on. And so, um, you know, I, I really think we need to give deans and, and provosts this, this uh, context and an understanding of uh, and making sure they're looking at the broader context of where, where these incidents are happening. Well, you know, I used to work in higher ed um, internationalization. That's what I used to research. And I think in that camp and in that you know, movement across a lot of campuses, there was this kind of deep understanding that there was fundamental knowledge or an orientation to the world that many college administrators wanted students to have, this kind of ideal of global citizenship. Now, maybe some presidents, provosts, deans were you know, just kind of granting a lip service, but it was kind of this really um, you know, exciting ideal that, that many people got behind. And I, to me, I think there's a an entire reorientation that could be taking place around free speech as well. And I think that's sort of what I was hinting at at the beginning and thinking about the kind of law around free speech, but then this kind of deeper international human rights uh, perspective. Because for me, and of course I know that many people on college campuses are, are worried about mitigating risk or, or you know, in the mm -hmm. litigious, the litigious history of the United States presents a kind of yes. um, omnipresent uh, concern. I think for many people running universities and colleges, but at the same time, I think there's kind of a deeper um, orientation toward free speech, which we could be inculcating among young people, which is to understand, you know, why it's good, you know, why, why free speech can be such an important ally in efforts for social change, why um, protecting, you know, the speech of other people, even if you vehemently disagree with it, um, is better than other forms of, um, um, shutting one down and closing off debate. And so I think that there's a kind of whole, just a whole orientation that could be taking place, uh, reorientation among administrators, which is yes, there is a law around the First Amendment, sure. And, and there are many laws that, um, you know, which, which administrators must abide. Uh, but even for private, for private institutions, you know, they aren't subject to the First Amendment, yet most of them still would say that they support academic freedom. They would say mm -hmm. that they support free speech. And so I think in, in, in one and both, you know, public and private, there are significant opportunities to, just as we had an orientation that was very um, kind of accepted as the status quo in higher ed around global citizenship a few years ago, um, to have a kind of similar re reorientation around the concept of free speech. And um, I, think, I think, you know, there has been a lot of attention to the N word in particular. That word has taken on a unique status in our current lexicon, but... I think you're absolutely right that there is a lot of context, context that is lost in a kind of hysteria over one word when, when people say it. And perhaps the irony is we're, we're, you know, many people seem to be more upset about um, the use of this word versus you know, real policies that are having significant and detrimental impact on the livelihoods of African-Americans. And, and that's a, you know, I'm not sure that then those people are necessarily consistent in thinking about both of those as equal challenges. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I'm thinking of a very recent event. We, ha we had a, a book burning on a campus. Um, and, you know, that kind of thing is, is heartbreaking to somebody who knows the history of, you know, 
ban books and, and book burning and so on. And, um, you know, I mean, how, it, you know, the, but the students, you know, they felt that they were being attacked. I mean, it's, it's really, an, a, it's, it seems like we've lost a lot of the historical context because yeah, I don't think these students really understood the symbol, symbolism of what burning a book um, you know, actually meant. And so I, I think there's a certain level of education that needs to be brought, you know, especially on the college campus. I mean, these students should understand, you know, the, the, that, you know, what that, the symbolism of what burning a book um, actually brings up for a lot of people. Um, and so, you know, in trying to deal with their own feeling of being attacked, it's, it's like it's flipping things around and, and attacking in a very, um, uh, you know, sensitive way, uh, a speaker who is trying to address issues around uh, white fragility and so on. Yeah, I think this book burning at Georgia Southern, um, it's, it's really appalling to me as well. And, and I think there, there's a famous line, you know, when, when we burn books, eventually, you know, people will be burned. And hopefully that isn't the case here. Um, uh, or at least, you know, that, that prophecy won't come through. No, I, um, and I, just, I think the students just didn't understand that, that, I mean, they probably had never heard that, you know, that, and, and understood that where that kind of, uh, you know, basically, you know, we go back to the Nazi uh, history and, you know, obviously we're, we're far away from uh, saying those students are, are uh, you know, moving in that direction. It's just a, an issue of them not understanding clearly the context for that. Yeah, I mean, it, I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, on one hand, you know, book burning is an, itself a protected form of expression, and that's been ruled by the Supreme Court. But um, at the at the same time, I mean, to think to think about what it means to obliterate, you know, the paper on which words are written, you know, it it just seems so inimical to any concept of of open debate um, or free expression. And I think it's it's truly alarming. I think it's a really menacing act. Uh, designed to intimidate, silence, um, or or just completely, you know, erase uh, someone's contribution, whether it's in fiction or nonfiction. So I think it's it's really alarming, and I think it was clearly very alarming for the author involved, uh, Janine Capo Cruset. Um, and uh, you know, it's interesting the reports of the dialogue that was taking place on the campus with her beforehand. You know, it doesn't sound like they were productive in the sense that they resolved things, but at least there was there was some you know, back and forth with her where people were saying, you know, we don't like your ideas or they offend us, you know, and she was explaining them to them, to the audience, uh, but to then think that it then led to this escalation, this act, I think it's truly alarming. Mm -hmm. Indeed, but you know, these are the kinds of issues that uh, we are grappling with um, at this time in our history. And, uh, you know, it makes one wonder, uh, you know, I, that's why when I teach my courses, um, you know, for example, on immigration politics, and I'm even working on a textbook, you know, I really try to emphasize the history, because I really think history is important for understanding where, you know, where we've come from on these topics, and where we're going. And, um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, obviously, there's a lot of focus on uh, understanding, um you know, you know, science and technology and, and engineering and the you know, STEM and all that. But um, you know, I think we're finding that uh, even for 
uh, people in the, you know, technology, the tech, you know, I live in Silicon Valley, so the tech sector has struggled a lot with, you know, these issues, and I think that uh, a better understanding of history and, and, you know, and diverse, as well as diversity and inclusion, which is, I know, as a topic you guys have, have dealt with in great detail. Um, yeah, well, I'm, I'm a student of history, you know, I, I, I think it's so critical. Yeah. Yeah, I know. My, I'm actually very happy that my son, who just went off to college, is studying uh, history himself. But um, so, I mean, I'm just curious, are there any last thoughts you have about ways we can grapple with these issues that you, you want to make sure we touch on? Well, you know, I think, I think the most critical is that, as I was saying before, in terms of a reorientation to these challenges, it's thinking about them not just as a reaction, right? So mm -hmm. uh, Georgia Southern has put out a statement uh, you know, condemning this act. And, and I don't know the history of what they had done on campus beforehand, but I think there's a whole education to be done, whether it's, as you said, you know, about learning about history, um, but also just learning about and understanding the value and um, the meaning of free expression um, as an ongoing part of the basic civic education that colleges should be offering. So I think mm -hmm. that that can be in inculcated and integrated into uh, welcome weeks into yes. uh, programs on campus, right? Into training surrounding student clubs, right? Like, so we're seeing this mm -hmm. a lot with student clubs and some lawsuits about um, groups wanting to form and administrators or, or other bodies uh, not allowing them. And I think there's just fundamental um, mis, you know, just, just, I don't want to say misunderstanding. It's not a misunderstanding. It's like, it's a total lack of knowledge of the history of the importance of the freedom of assembly. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, like it or not, that is not just part of the legal heritage of this country, but it's part of the, um, you know, just like the institutional value of what has made American society unique um, in the world. And the other thing that I'll just raise is just that it isn't, you know, we're talking a lot about history, but I, to come back to the internationalism of it all, which is the importance of looking at what's happening around the world. And, yes. and you know, often we have this conversation about free speech in the U.S. right now that's really deeply tied to the First Amendment when, okay, that's that's part of it, but I think it's remarkably myopic, at times nationalistic, jingoistic, you know, this kind of inward focus on free expression and the future of uh, the United States, when we really need to be having a deeper conversation about free expression in China or Myanmar or uh, Hungary, um, where there are, you know, or Brazil, I'm thinking of as well, you know, places where we have authoritarians in charge, uh, who really do undermine just any even semblance of a free press uh, or uh, the circulation of news. I mean, just this week, we've had China, um, met, you know, threatening to, um, um, you know, disband all of its partnerships with the NBA over free mm -hmm. Hong Kong protests. We've had them um, remove uh, episodes of South Park uh, mm -hmm. from the internet. I mean, that's it. It's gone. The whole mm -hmm. thing is gone. And so, you know, to me, when I think about free expression, I think about this, you know, inculcating this value among the youth uh, uh, and the future rising generation. It's really not just about some abstract, you know, First Amendment and we're trying to protect people's rights to say things hateful. No, I'm, I'm trying to protect, you know, South Park. I'm trying to protect the NBA, <laughs> uh, you know, I, and I think, I think people sometimes lose sight of that. And so those international dimensions can be really powerful way uh, and means of teaching about these issues. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree with that as somebody who's studied these issues, uh, you know, especially around immigration politics and so on and, and, you know, why people are leaving these countries, you know, to come to, uh, you know, play, places in Europe and the US um, and how free expression is, is so important. I mean, and people are losing their lives uh, over uh, free speech. Um, are yeah, right? or, or, or being jailed, right? We've had numerous instances of, of uh, uh, people being jailed for speaking out, for being critical on trumped up fake charges. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, that's, that's, there's a kind of, um, there's, a, there's a, a, a chilling effect, no doubt, of free speech and, and free press when that is happening. And I think that sometimes this debate that's been happening about free speech on campus is had as though those other concerns, you know, don't exist in the world at all. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. Well, this has been a really great discussion um, of a, a tough topic, and I really appreciate uh, your thoughts on this. And, and again, that's the Campus Free Speech Guide, at, uh, which is on the Penn.org website, and it's a really great resource. Um, actually, I use it myself <laughs> on a regular basis. Um, but thanks so much, Jonathan. We, we really appreciate you. And um, this has been the Higher Ed Leadership Podcast. We are the Center for Higher Education Leadership, and our website is www.higheredleads.com, and you can also find our uh, newsletter at www.higheredconnects.com, and we hope everybody is having a wonderful day, and we will sign off now.